0: This is a free episode of Checks and Balance. To listen every week, you'll need to be a subscriber.
1: For a free trial of our new subscription, Economist Podcasts Plus, click on the link in the show notes or look for Economist Podcasts in your favorite search engine.
2: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
0: Every 5th of November, the UK celebrates Guy Fawkes Night, marking a failed plot by Catholic rebels to blow up the Houses of Parliament and the Protestant King with it in 1605. It used to be celebrated in parts of America, too, a custom brought over by British settlers in the early 17th century. At that time, it was very much an anti-Catholic celebration and became known in New England as Pope's Day, with an effigy of the pontiff burned on the bonfire. But in 1775, George Washington, in a bid to encourage religious tolerance, expressed his disapproval. Pope's day fell out of fashion. On November 5th next year, while Brits are letting off fireworks and lighting their bonfires, Americans will be going to the polls. With 354 days until the 2024 election, I'm John Priddo and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, less than a year before the presidential election, how do things stand? If the election were held tomorrow, Donald Trump would probably be the favorite to win. But, spoiler alert, the election will not be held tomorrow. Beyond the headlines and overreactions to polls, what's most useful to think about now, 12 months before election day? And given the very real chance of him winning, how should the world outside America prepare itself for the possibility of a second Trump term? This is our 200th episode of the podcast. In typical style, we're not really going to celebrate this one. We'll have a special 201st episode next week for Thanksgiving. Idris, how
3: are you doing and what have you been up to? I have been well. Um, I just got back from Philadelphia where I was for a day and uh, I'll be back in two weeks when we record our live show. Um, So I hope to see many of you there who can see us in real life. I was going to say in three dimensions, but many of you probably just haven't seen us at all.
0: Yes, the inaugural Checks and Balance live show in Philadelphia on the 28th of November. We're really looking forward to seeing some of our listeners there.
2: Indeed, you can get more information in the show notes. My main update is that our Shaiguan column written by David Rennie used the musical Guys and Dolls to explain China's strategy in the South China Sea, which is a framing for which I deserve neither credit nor censure. But I was thrilled to see him write it in that way.
3: I know absolutely nothing about Guys and Dolls.
2: Our Czech show is actually just going to be a Clockwork Orange-style experience of making Idris listen to the full catalogue of American musicals. Speaking of
0: Clockwork Orange and horror shows, Idris, a government shutdown was narrowly averted this week. The government won't shut down, at least until the new year, perhaps. So that's some good news, I guess.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's been punted down the road for three months. They've installed this new kink, which is that a uh, part of the federal government will shut down in late January and the other part will come in February if they can't agree to a deal. But I look forward to the collective can kicking that will ensue in the year ahead. And uh, what else do I look forward to? I guess the election. <laughs> um, I guess
0: being the operative phrase that we are one year away from the next US presidential election. And to help us work out what we know a year out or perhaps more to the point, what we don't know. I spoke with John Sides earlier this week. He's a political scientist based at Vanderbilt University, and he's the co-author of some fine books about the past three presidential elections. It's been a couple of weeks now since that New York Times Siena poll, which showed Donald Trump leading Joe Biden in several battleground states. That poll caused some panic, I think it's fair to say, among those who are not excited for the idea of a second Donald Trump term. I began by asking John what his reaction was to that poll.
4: Well, first of all, I think everyone I pretty much knows the important caveat, which is that polling a year prior to a presidential general election has very little predictive value. So that was one thing, of course. You have to keep in mind and it's very difficult because everyone is drawn to interesting new polls like, you know, a shiny object. The other piece of context that I think is pretty important is that there's other polling that shows that essentially Biden and Trump are, at least in the national polls, neck and neck, right? So put the the Times-Siena polls were polls in certain battleground states. But if you just zoom out, take all the national polls, do the usual averaging, it's a tight election. So we shouldn't necessarily read into the Times-Siena polls that Trump is winning or
0: Trump is leading in the polls at this point in time.
4: That said, if I were an advisor to Joe Biden, which I am not, I think there is reason for concern.
0: John, given it seems really likely that the two candidates in 2024 will be the same as they were in 2020, would you expect, you know, all things being equal, polls to move around less than would normally be the case during the course of a presidential election because the two candidates are so familiar? Or is it the case that actually the fact that the two candidates – are so familiar, makes previous polling, particularly when you're doing election modeling, quite hard to make comparisons with, because it's just really unusual to have, you know, at this early stage, such a good handle on who the candidates are likely to be.
4: Yeah, it's a great question. So when we looked at the 2020 polling, for example, in our book about that election, um, there was a lot of stability. At the same time, there were, I think, consequential movements. So poll movements are entirely possible. What I would expect in this election, this is one maybe piece of good news for Biden is I think there's an upside for him. Part of the reason why his approval numbers are lagging is that there are um, you know, a decent chunk of Democrats who don't right now approve of the job he's doing as president. They're not as enthusiastic about his candidacy. There's many polls of Democrats showing that they wish there were other candidates in the race, that there was an alternative to Biden. But what campaigns typically do is they bring your choices in line with your underlying predispositions and values and beliefs. Um, they, they take your choices and make them more predictable. So for those Democrats who are at the moment not enthused about Biden, I think the campaign is likely to bring them aboard. And so that creates some potential for poll movement in his favor. But I, again, but that's not an automatic, inevitable thing. It is a typical pattern, but that's what I might expect to see.
0: And when we're trying to take the temperature of American public opinion, we don't just have to rely on polls, right? You can look at the off-year elections that happened recently. Many people who don't want Donald Trump to be the next president, as I said, were worried by or are worried about how the polls look at the moment, but were somewhat cheered by how the results in Virginia and a few other places went. Presumably the same caveat applies to them. You know, it's early and they don't have huge predictive power. That's correct.
4: I think what the polls and the outcomes in those races show is that, like, it's possible for there to be good outcomes for Democrats. It's possible for a Democrat to win even a conservative state like Kentucky, the governor, a Democrat, got reelected. But there's nothing inconsistent between seeing some good outcomes for Democrats in those elections and Biden having a struggle in 2024.
0: And John, you and Lynn Vavrek and some other co-authors have written a series of really good books explaining in political science terms what happened in the past three presidential elections for the next one you will have people asking you all the time what's going on who's going to win all that sort of thing and i'm sure you'll try and avoid making prognostications but what are some of the things some of the indicators you'll be watching that people who are less au fait with political science might ignore
4: certainly i take a a regular look at consumer confidence and to see if The big slide that happened in the first two years of Biden's presidency, largely we assume because of the increase in inflation. If that's ever going to bounce back now that inflation rates come down, related to that, of course, is presidential approval. Biden's approval rating dropped alongside consumer confidence, but then it really hasn't rebounded even as consumer confidence has begun to rebound. And so I'm really interested in whether Biden's approval rating changes. And another thing that has typically happened for presidents, although it did not happen for Trump, is that their approval rating increases in the re-election year. And that may be just a function of the fact that they're running a campaign and it sort of reminds people of the good things that they've done. So I'm really interested in whether Biden can benefit from that. And then I think also the other thing that we haven't really had a chance to think deeply about are just the other kinds of beliefs and impressions of the candidates that the voters have beyond just the like, who would you vote for if the election were held today question. So one simple indicator of that is just how favourably you perceive the candidates. Um, Both candidates' favorability numbers are underwater. Trump's somewhat more than Biden's. But the question is, can that change at all? Can Biden, like Biden built a lot of support among Democrats in 2020. Their favourable ratings of Biden got better after the
0: primary. Just to interrupt you there, so you're drawing the distinction in the polling between that question that says who would you vote for tomorrow and which candidate do you have a favourable view of? And those two things don't necessarily point in the same direction.
4: Right. So in other words, the way I think about it is you can ask questions that are specific to each candidate in terms of your impressions of them. Like, do you have a favorable view of Joe Biden? Do you have a favorable view of Donald Trump? You know, other kinds of impressions. I'm interested in, do those impressions become more favorable or less favorable as the campaign goes on? Because those are numbers that you can't, you are just given two choices, would you vote for Trump or Biden? You can't really tell how people are actually feeling about the candidates. And I'd really like to know if either of the candidates can change how people feel about them, make them feel more positively about them. And one of the things I'm mindful of when we go back to the, the New York Times CNN polls that got so much attention is, you know, people sort of think that views of Trump are already completely formed and everyone knows everything they need to know about Trump. And that's sort of true, but it's not entirely true because we have an election year that's going to be pretty eventful, not just including the the legal trials that he's, going to be facing. But just the fact that for the first time in four years, we're really going to be focusing on him as a presidential candidate. There's going to be more reporting about what he says and does, the things he wants to do. So I do feel like there is a lot of information that we're going to get that isn't completely old hat. And therefore, you could imagine some degree of updating going on among voters. And we'll know that by looking at these other kinds of questions about people's impressions of the candidates.
0: Idris, I don't think it's useful or wise to try and predict now what's going to happen next year. So just let's underline that at the top of this episode. We're not going to be talking about who we think is going to win next year. But it's also not the case that nobody knows anything, right? And so you've been writing about this subject recently, looking at how the race looks a year out. What are the sorts of things you'll be watching? And what do you think we can usefully say now? So... At the moment,
3: we should take a little stock in the head-to-head polls that we're seeing, as John Sides pointed out, and I think his books with Lynn Vavrick or and Michael Tesler are some of the best works that have been written about American politics in the last decade. But if you look at them, you know you see that the average predictivity is very low one year out. But again, a lot of uncertainty doesn't mean that there is no information that is being conveyed by these polls. So for those who thought that Joe Biden would be cruising to victory in a landslide against a very fatally wounded Donald Trump. Obviously, that proposition is untrue. It should be defeated in everyone's mind uh, if it still lurk there. But what are some other things that you can look at? One is the president's approval rating, and that tends to be uh, fairly predictive of how Voters will rate him one year on, as, as Professor Seid said, you know, it improves a bit. But at the moment, Joe Biden has a fairly low one. That's not great for reelection odds. And the second is how Americans rate the economy. And I think the White House is incredibly frustrated. They think they've accomplished a lot. They're trying to run on Bidenomics, but uh, the American people are not giving them particularly much credit on that. So if those two numbers, which uh, some political scientists will call fundamentals start to change, uh, that can improve the environment for Joe Biden sort of beside what you see in the head-to-head polls. As far as what I'll be looking at, one particular, I think, deciding factor in this election is going to be whether working-class voters, white and non-white... Continue their shift towards the Republican Party. Uh, in 2016, we saw obviously a tremendous shift towards Donald Trump, and in 2020 and in the 2022 elections, we saw a big shift among Hispanic voters and Black voters as well. If that continues, then that will be a lot of trouble for Joe Biden, uh, particularly in some of the states that he needs to win, like Arizona or Georgia. So, whether or not those trends move or continue to show a slide, I think is going to be very important in the year ahead.
2: Those numbers really stood out to me as well. And the other thing I thought was interesting and worrisome for Biden in that poll was the status of opinion in a few states, because it's just not that many people in not that many places who will decide this election. The really important states are Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And in all of those except Wisconsin, Donald Trump was leading among registered voters by Four points or more, which is not great for Biden. And Biden was leading only in Wisconsin by a margin of two points. So that's really worrisome for them. And one thing that I think is interesting when you look at the presidential net approval ratings is that Biden really took a dive in August of 2021 with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was a disaster. And they just haven't recovered at all. And there's been a lot that's happened since then. You've had Biden do, I think, a good job handling Ukraine, a decent job handling the war in Israel and Gaza. The economy has not taken a nosedive in the way that some predicted it might. We haven't gone into recession. And though we might think that some of Biden's policies are not exactly what the economists would recommend, for instance, his stance on trade, in general, he's been a pretty safe Of hands, And so the question is, what's going to change now, right? If polls are a moment, a snapshot of a moment in time, what's the additional information that will change in the months ahead? And it doesn't seem like it's that likely that voters are going to get that much new information about Joe Biden. I mean, one of the things they really don't like about him is his age, and his age is going to remain what it is.
0: It might even increase.
2: Indeed, it might even increase. And... I don't think there's more that he or his delegates are really going to do to convince Americans of the benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act. But what people might remember is just how awful Trump is as Trump really gets out there. And so I think that will be, in my mind at least, what will be most impactful for the Biden administration. And I'm interested to see whether they go negative more because I don't know that the positive message wins. I like Michelle Obama's mantra, when they go low, we go high, but... I don't know how that plays out in this election.
3: One thing that's interesting is, you know, when we think about we're one year out, these two men are incredibly, incredibly well known. They've both been former presidents. I don't know how long ago you'd have to go back uh, in history before you could find a scenario like that in which both presumable candidates are going to be so well known to the American people. So why would we think that the race would be at all dynamic? And I think one answer is that if you look at the shift in public opinion between 2016 and 2020, where, you know, Donald Trump was known incredibly polarizing. You did see actually big movements in public opinion. So, among non-white voters, Republicans improved their margins by 11 points. They improved their margins among African American voters by 6 points and among Hispanics by 18, which is an enormous enormous shift in the course of 4 years in 2022, what we saw is Hispanics in the midterm elections continue to drift towards the Republican Party, especially in places like Florida and the Texas border. And the reason that that wasn't fatal to Joe Biden in 2020, and it wasn't fatal to uh, Democrats in 2022 is that Democrats managed to run up their numbers even more among college educated voters, and Joe Biden managed to actually win back some of the white working class voters uh, that Trump appealed away. So, you know, that suggests that even though these add up roughly to uh, 50-50 splits, that there is a lot moving underneath kind of tectonically under the American political system, such that, you know, the 2024 election might be a bit more dynamic than we might otherwise think.
0: I think that's a great place to leave part one of this episode. In a moment, we'll go back to another president who was in a pickle with a year until election day. But first, we've made this episode of Checks and Balance available for everyone But normally, you can only listen to us now if you have an Economist subscription. To join us as we cover the 2024 election, which, in case you need reminding, is going to be pretty important, the best thing to do is to take out an Economist Podcasts Plus subscription. As well as Checks and Balance, subscribers can listen to our weekly shows, Money Talks on Business and Finance, Babbage on Science and Tech, and Drum Tower on China. There are special series like our management podcast, Boss Class. And there's also the Weekend Intelligence, our home for storytelling. Thank you to the thousands of you who are now part of the Podcasts Plus Club. And if you're not already, we hope that you'll join us soon and carry on listening to Checks and Balance. If you Google Economist Podcasts, you'll find a link for a free trial. That'll also be in our show notes.
1: Others say that I'm arrogant, but I found a really great self-help tool for this. My poll numbers.
0: <laughs> At the White House Correspondents' Dinner in April 2011, Barack Obama was able to joke about his poor numbers. But as the year wore on, it stopped being a
3: laughing matter. When asked if the president deserves to be re-elected, the majority, 54%, said no
2: by all historic measures the president stands to lose there's that stubborn nine percent unemployment rate and an economy that has failed to kickstart
4: where a new cbs news poll is pointing to what could be a difficult road ahead for the president according to the poll only 41 percent of americans believe barack obama deserves to be reelected.
1: barack obama has a 43 percent approval rating in the gallup poll no president running for reelection has ever had a job rating that low in December of his third year in the history of the Gallup poll.
0: Doomsayers filled the airwaves in the last few months of 2011. The New York Times asked, is Obama toast? Here at The Economist, we gave Republicans a fair chance of grabbing the White House and turning Mr. Obama into the first one-term president since George Bush Sr. Granted, there were some polls, less alluring perhaps to headline writers, that looked better for Obama. The Real Clear Politics average from the beginning of November 2011 showed him just beating Mitt Romney. The race was tight, the economy was anemic, and the president was unpopular. With a year to go, Obama's re-election was in serious doubt. But the following November,
2: tonight. More than 200 years after a former colony won the right to determine its own
1: destiny, the task of perfecting our union moves forward.
0: It was a solid victory. Obama lost only two of the states he'd taken in 2008.
2: And we know in our
0: hearts
1: that for the United States of America, the best is yet to come.
0: He had a famously good ground game, and painted Romney as rich and out of touch. The Republican was prone to gaffes and had tacked too far to the right to win the primary, putting off many voters. Helpfully, the economy perked up a little as the election approached.
2: Thank you, America. God bless you. God bless these United States.
0: In November 2011, Barack Obama's position did not look as bad as Joe Biden's does in November 2023. And the 46th president lacks the 44th's charisma and flourish on the stump that could persuade undecided voters on the campaign trail. But Barack Obama's change in fortunes between November 2011 and polling day is a reminder that it's foolish to try and call an election one year out. So Charlotte, that was a reminder of how much can change in the 12 months before a presidential election. Have you got some others for us?
2: Well, it can go both ways because George H.W. Bush was pulling really well a year out. And then Bill Clinton shot ahead, in part because he got a boost from the Democratic Convention and his choice of Al Gore. You had these two energetic people who felt like the future. And then he was also seen as being better at managing the economy. And I was trying to think about what are the big factors that could change for Biden himself? So leaving apart voters' reaction to Donald Trump. What could happen within uh, Biden world that would have a big impact? So clearly the economy's performance and voters' confidence in the economy. The potential for there to be a real foreign policy disaster feels so high. I mean, the future of what's going on in Israel and Gaza is extremely uncertain And he has to manage a very fractious Democratic Party with opposing views and a real generational split between older Democrats who are very, very supportive of Israel and a younger progressive generation, which is energized and out on the streets, literally, protesting for the Palestinian cause. So holding that coalition together is going to be extremely tricky. You have the war in Ukraine, of course, which I think he's handled as well as he could, candidly, and reinforced the importance of American leadership within NATO. And then the last real thing is a health event. I mean, I'm thinking back to the 1996 campaign when Bob Dole fell off the stage. Idris was probably in his crib at the time, so won't recall this. But it wasn't even a big deal. He slipped. And that was bad for him. It made him look like an infirm leader who was not as vital and powerful as Bill Clinton, who faced all kinds of problems. And so there's a potential for a real health event, which takes the president off the campaign trail. And then there's a potential for all kinds of little stuff, a slip here, more mumbling there. Unlike 2020, as we've all noted, he will need to be out there in a way that he wasn't in the last election. He'll need to be out there campaigning. So there are a bunch of factors that he has to reckon with, none of which are straightforward.
0: Yeah, I think those are all good points. I wanted just to linger on that question of coalition management. I mean, whenever a party's governing cracks become apparent in its coalition. That was definitely the case when Donald Trump was in the White House. Republicans looked divided a lot of the time. But I think Charlotte rightly points out you're seeing a real division open up within the Democratic coalition over the war between Israel and Hamas. And I think it's the first time we've really seen that since Joe Biden became president. The party's been remarkably united around his policy priorities generally. I think this is the first real test of coalition management. And there's another one, which Daniel Knowles, our Chicago correspondent, was writing about a couple of weeks ago. African-Americans in Chicago are, many African-Americans are very unhappy about the large number of migrants arriving in that city, being housed at the city's expense. And some of the protests there take the form of people saying, well, hang on, that money being spent on these folks should be spent on us as well. So you are starting to see these uh, cracks open up in the Democratic coalition. Now, nothing unifies a party coalition like a common enemy. And Donald Trump is a very powerful unifier of the
3: Democratic Party. So you have to take that into account as well. I've been wondering whether or not that kind of superficial camaraderie is exactly that if, if it's superficial. And, you know, like you pointed out, African American voters in Chicago are upset with the amount that's being spent to house uh, asylum seekers and recent migrants. But you also see other cracks, right? So Hispanics generally are fairly in favor of, of border security and border security spending. The democratic idea that uh, comprehensive immigration reform was the way to kind of win over Hispanics, I think has been proven incorrect. African Americans are concerned with crime. Defunding the police is unpopular. And it's one uh, idea that was very prominent in 2020 that will be brought back. Asian Americans were annoyed with not only crime, but also the Democratic Party's embrace of affirmative action, which hurt their numbers at uh, selective schools and universities. And so there is something about, you know, if you have this circle Of people in D.C. who are all talking amongst themselves. It seems like, you know, things are going smoothly under the surface. If you look at particularly voting results, even in places like the Bronx, in Miami, in L.A., formerly very steadfast Democratic constituencies are moving a bit more to the right. um, And I think a lot of it has to do with this actual kind of dissent uh, with the direction of the party.
2: It reminds me a bit of Hillary Clinton in 2016, whom many voters thought was unlikable, I think because of her gender. But Many voters think that Biden is just too old. And then he has all these ideas, all these policies that he has advanced. And Hillary Clinton had a binder full of wonky ideas for how America could be made better. But she lost to Trump because she was somewhat unlikable and because people thought he wasn't going to be so bad. And it turns out that he is so bad. And so... Biden's not going to change. I don't think the opinion of his policies are going to change much. And it goes back to that question of whether voters remember just how bad he is, in particular suburban voters, the voters in those six states that I highlighted earlier, whether they're reacquainted with Trump himself and also whether the implications of a second Trump presidency sink in. And it's this amazingly different vantage point, right, that people have on him. Many Democrats think he should be in jail. And Republicans, many of them want him to be in the White House. And so it's a remarkable position with which to be entering 2024.
3: Can I give you my favorite quote from Hillary Clinton during her campaign that I think perfectly crystallized her message and I think also perfectly crystallized why she lost? She said, if we broke up the big banks tomorrow, and I will, if they deserve it, if they pose a systemic risk, I will. Would that end racism? Would that end sexism? Would that end discrimination against the LGBT community? Would that make people feel more welcoming and immigrants overnight? Would that solve our problem with the voting rights? I mean, I think that's just the, <laughs> that was the core of her argument, and I don't think it worked. And I think that's, that's, this still is why she lost.
2: I want the audiobook of you reading Hillary Clinton's political biographies.
3: Uh, yeah, I'll sing you fight song too.
0: I'm going to hold you to that at the live event. Alright, next we're going to talk about what a Donald Trump second term might mean for the world beyond America. But before we get there, Charlotte Idris, what would you recommend to our listeners
3: from the past week's Economist? I greatly enjoyed the vitriolic badgett column about the return of David Cameron as Foreign Secretary uh, to the UK. Uh, It's a delightfully enjoyable read that gives him absolutely no quarter.
2: In addition to the Shagwan column, which I referenced earlier, which is excellent, I think people should check out an interactive feature that we had on school shootings in America, which is comprehensive and sobering and really worth looking up.
0: This week's Economist features a series of articles looking ahead to the world next year. One theme overshadows everything our writers have been thinking about, the US election. The Economist's deputy editor, Ed Carr, has been considering what a Donald Trump victory would mean outside of America. When we talked earlier, I began by suggesting to him that despite Trump's transactional approach, in foreign policy at least, the first Trump term wasn't as bad as we feared.
1: The worst things that I was worried about, particularly the sort of unraveling of the world, didn't happen to the extent I thought it might. I think that's partly because being transactional in a foreign affairs isn't in principle a bad thing. I mean, it's a sensible way for countries to go about running the world. It's not, <laughs> running the world is not an exercise in, in altruism. It's a way of trying to get people's interests to be resolved in a peaceful way way. So it's important that countries follow their interests. And, and some of the things that Trump wanted in Trump one were in America's interests. What worries me really about Trump two is that Trump's sense of transactions of what's in America's interests and what's the right are unanchored by a sense of reality, and also unanchored by kind of solid values. Just let me just give an example about unanchored by reality. I mean, the idea that it's somehow in America's interest to have a big universal 10% tariff on imports, to me, defies comprehension. If that's your grasp of reality and of what really is in America's interest, then that's a very kind of worrying sense of what he might or might not do in the second term. And then in terms of values, I think what's changed for me over Trump won is that if Trump wins the election – I think he'll be confirmed in all his worst instincts about how sort of norms, any sense of self-sacrifice, any sense of sort of long-term good, paying a personal price for the interest of America. That, his sense that those kinds of constraints are for losers will only, to my mind, be enhanced. And yet they are what makes a nation work and they are what ultimately brings some sort of cohesion to the world. So I, I worry that sort of Trump unconstrained and affirmed in his worst instincts could do some pretty bad things. And let's face it, you know, the world in 2016 was a lot more peaceful and uh, you could feel a lot more comfort about it than you can about the, the world in 2023.
0: I think that's a really key point, isn't it? The context has changed. You might argue, surveying the period from 2016 or 2017 to to 2020, the end of 2020, that Donald Trump was somewhat lucky. I think the idea of a president with his instincts being in charge right now, when you have the war in Ukraine going on, when you have Israel's war with Hamas, etc, etc, you know, that's a different thing, isn't it?
1: It is. And the other thing I think is really important to have in mind here is the dynamic of uh, when people feel, when countries feel that America is losing grip on power and you have a president who won't intervene, the number of challenges starts to multiply. Nothing keeps order for a hegemonic power like the United States than, than a feeling around the world that it's basically on top of things. Well, you know, if America's struggling in to deal with the war in Ukraine, partly because Donald Trump said he's going to walk away from it, so Vladimir Putin feels emboldened if if people feel like the the most successful military alliance uh, since the Second World War, possibly ever, i.e., NATO, is beginning to unravel because Donald Trump is not honouring the collective security guarantee that says that a attack on Estonia is the same as an attack on the United States. If that's beginning to unravel, then I think you get a sense of multiplying challenges to the status quo as countries feel emboldened to have a shot at their neighbor or to start bullying someone else. So I I think there's a very unhealthy dynamic that's already underway and I think would accelerate were Donald Trump to be president.
0: So you have lots of allies looking at their security alliances with America and wondering if Donald Trump were president, would those hold? And that then makes it likelier that those guarantees or those alliances are tested. That That's one aspect to it. But there's also another aspect, isn't there, that a second Trump win, I think, would change the meaning of America, what America stands for in the eyes of its allies. I mean, back in 2016, I think most outsiders who... Involved in foreign policy are pretty sophisticated analysts of American politics, and they could see that in some senses, Donald Trump's victory was I don't want to say accidental, but it's not clear that Americans knew what they were getting when they voted for him, and also. He won through a peculiar set of circumstances, by which I mean you know, losing the popular vote, won in the Electoral College, had a few tens of thousands of votes in Pennsylvania, a few other states gone a different way, he wouldn't have been president. Re-electing him, given his record, would be a very different thing. That would be a very deliberate choice. And I think that changes how America's friends and allies around the world would, would, would think about what's actually going on in the country.
1: Yeah, it, Trump won. It was very easy to believe that Trump coming in was essentially going to be sort of chairman of the board, sort of Reagan-like, assemble lots of talents and try and run the United States like, like a company. It didn't happen. Not only that, but you've also had the January the 6th assault on the Capitol, which um, you know Trump has thrived on that to a shocking degree and built his campaign around that. If he's elected now, it's an affirmation, not only of the way he governed first time around, but of that sort of central event. I'll tell you one other thing, which is that if he carries out his threat for retribution in a second term, using the Justice Department and various agencies in order to pursue his enemies, then I think people will look at him trampling the rule of law, at least threatening the rule of law, and manipulating it to his own advantage, and I think it does immense harm to America's credibility. And, and let's remember that, that that there's a perception in the in the global south that America's foreign policy is is all hypocrisy. I, I think that's nonsense. To me, it's the astonishing degree to which no other global dominating power has combined both its pursuit of its own interests, but with a bigger global sense of what's right or wrong for the world than the United States since the Second World War and I think that is severely threatened by Trump too. The more you know, he tramples law and order at home the less it's just clear that sort of might is right and America becomes just like any other superpower um, in history. You know, Most of them have been pretty amoral. Some of them have been immoral. there are all sorts of ways in which the
0: Biden administration likes to link foreign policy to domestic policy. And one of them is this framing that they ran with early on, that there was a contest in the world between democracy and autocracy. And I think the subtext there was that Donald Trump and his supporters in the Republican Party weren't wholly on the side of democracy. That framing, at least judging by his poll numbers, which is maybe not the right metric, that framing doesn't seem to excite that many Americans, as far as I can tell.
3: Yeah, well, what we see is that the idea that loads of well-meaning Republicans would be so appalled by what happened on January 6th and the prosecutions that are ongoing that they would ditch Donald Trump and mass clearly have not come to fruition. And I imagine that, you know, Joe Biden will use those points throughout the campaign and they'll be strengthened, perhaps, if Donald Trump is convicted of any of these offenses, although he has prepared his base very thoroughly for the delegitimization of, of all of these trials that I don't know that it'll make terribly much difference among them and might have some effect upon, among independents. But the entirety of the Biden approach of a foreign policy for the middle class or, uh, you know, this kind of democracy versus autocracy framing that they've tried to take internationally, I think, has also perhaps fallen a bit flatter than they would imagine. Um, for one, it's it's not you know looked on particularly kindly by China, which America has to deal with. And secondly,, um, as Ed was saying, there is quite a lot of real politic in, in international relations. And, uh, you know, America is no stranger to that. So although it has, a, I think, a general preference for democratic countries that respect human rights, you know, it's still allied with uh, notorious human rights abusers like uh, Egypt. It's an important place. The Gulf countries, which America has an uncomfortable relationship with as well, are not really respectful of human rights either. I think that when countries in the global south sort of assess america's positions whether it's on ukraine or on israel you you see a growing share that is uh, sort of annoyed with uh with this framing you see uh, countries like india And South Africa abstaining from UN resolutions that are put forward by the United States in favor of Ukraine. And that's a resurrection of sorts of the non aligned movement. And I think it has something to do with this feeling that American foreign policy, although it's often delivered in the language of morals and it always has been, the reality of it is often a bit different.
2: I agree with that. I think that there are two ways in which America, as a moral authority, in the question of whether Trump undermines that authority. I think there are two ways in which that is important. So we've talked about that on the global level, and I agree with you that there's real politic that's at play. But I also agree with Ed in America's vital role on the global stage. I guess I'd also just point out there's lots of practical stuff that's not necessarily about moral authority, but just about American leadership. And you see that particularly on climate, right? I mean, Trump would gut try as far as he could to gut as much of the Inflation Reduction Act as he can, which is America's only substantial action that it's ever taken to try to mitigate climate change, um, which is a big deal. There are also practical ways in which it's not really about morality, but it would have a real impact, whether it's ongoing support for Ukraine, whether it's Trump's stance towards China, which is more mercantile, but he also is surrounded by hawks. So Ed has pointed out, right, that you could have a miscalculation there that could be disastrous, where there's a lack of clarity on America's position here. And you could have uh, China invade Taiwan thinking that America would have one response when, in fact, there'd be another. It's a very risky proposition. But going back to the question of American moral clarity, it's important for the world, but I think it's most important for Americans. I mean, there has been a historic decline in the public's trust in american institutions and this stretches back to watergate but it's continued on a downward slope and is more or less at a nadir and if trump is elected this guy who tried to overthrow the results of the 2020 election who has perpetuated this lie you know, what is the purpose of american ideals or institutions at all what is america if there's no faith in elections there's no faith in its courts there's no faith in the rule of law, in the role of media, in holding the powerful to account. I just think it's a real fundamental cancer on the idea of what America is. I, I sound kind of too general or naive or something in saying that, but it's a, a fundamental challenge to the idea of this country at its core. I guess my,
3: my point is not that I disagree with that analysis. It's that um, half of the country just doesn't see it like, can't see it, is going to support this guy, right? Like, how do you, if it's so abundantly clear, why is it that half the country is going to vote for him again?
2: Yeah, that's exactly the point and exactly Biden's challenge is that really basic things about Trump's qualifications for serving in the White House again don't land. The arguments for Joe Biden's policies don't seem to land. And so then the question is, what will and why don't these arguments (laughs) land? And so I think we and everyone else in media have a real job ahead of us not to be uh, spouting all the time about the future of American democracy, but really on a granular level, looking at the issues that care to voters in specific places, what matters to them, what the candidates are saying about how they can help particular voters, because of course everyone's looking out for both their vision of what America should be, but also their own interests over the next year, over the next six months, for how their households can make it through, right? So I think it's the job to go from the really high 30,000-foot level of what's at stake in this election and explain the decisions that voters are making in really key states that will determine its outcome.
3: I don't mean to be trolling, and I do agree with the threat that Donald Trump poses to American institutions to America's credibility abroad and to America's system of alliances that has kept the world peaceful in large degree after World War II. One thing I've been increasingly worried about is that we all talk to people who who agree with that, right? But what I worry about is that, you know, half the country, nearly half, I you know, we're not going to do predictions, but I think that it's safe to predict that this election will be another coin toss just will not see these issues in, in anything close to that way. And so we do need some amount of understanding about um, why it is, why why these arguments don't resonate, um, whether these are arguments that are crafted for, you know, people who went to college, who are the ones who are in the media, consume the media, et cetera, and whether or not, you know, people who actually will decide the election, um, who don't kind of share social connections, the social media, the media that that we do, that, uh, that we actually get a sense of, of what motivates them and pushes them, because I think that's ultimately what matters. Well, one of the things that the three
0: of us will be doing over the next year is getting out of those filter bubbles and talking to lots of people in swing states and in very Republican states about how they see Donald Trump and how they see Joe Biden. And we'll be talking about that on the podcast. I think... From my point of view, I think there are going to be four main 2024 stories that we'll be covering on the podcast over the next year. One is the one we've been talking about today in some senses, who's going to win, and The Economist will have its election forecast model which will be unveiled in the spring of next year. I think the key there is to get comfortable with a high degree of uncertainty. This election, as Idris says, is quite likely to be a coin toss and we'll be doing our best to avoid overconfidence whilst hopefully having some enlightening conversations about what's likely to happen. The other one, which Charlotte hinted at, is the consequences of a Donald Trump victory or a Joe Biden victory in terms of public policy. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that we're very interested in public policy here at The Economist. And in 2024, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump will have records which we can examine. The third one is Trump's trials. I don't think that needs any further elaboration. And then the final one is this meta story, if you like, about how American democracy will hold up when one of the candidates doesn't respect the results of the election. So that's what we'll be talking about over the next year. Please do stick with us if you're not a regular listener. Before I let you go, Charlotte and Idris, uh, it's quiz time. Earlier, we heard a snippet of Barack Obama's election night victory speech from 2012. I'm going to read you a quote from other election victory speeches, and I want you to tell me the president and the year. To make this a little bit easier, they're all from the past 50 years. Okay, first one. Who said, I want to begin this night by thanking my family, my wife, without whom I would not be here tonight, and who I believe will be one of the greatest first ladies in the history of the republic.
2: Yeah, that really could be anyone.
3: It could be anyone. I'm going to go with...
0: Oh,
2: who you... Go ahead. I was going to go with, uh, Reagan.
3: I would go with Bill Clinton in 92.
0: It was Bill Clinton in 92.
2: Oh, so good.
0: Appoint Idris. Okay, the next one. I was never the likeliest candidate for this office. Um, you said victory speech? Barack Obama? It's a figurative speech. It was Barack Obama. Oh, great. Which year are you going for, CH? Uh,
2: I'll say 2008.
0: It was Barack Obama in 2008.
2: I was there in 2008 in Grant Park. It was memorable. There was this woman standing next to me with her daughter, a black woman from the south side of Chicago. And when the news came in that Obama had won, the crowd absolutely erupted. But she and her daughter stood holding each other, sobbing. It was, it was really a memorable election.
0: That's a cool thing to have been there for. Okay, last one. I pledge to every citizen of our land that I will be president for all of Americans, and this is so important to me. For those who've chosen not to support me in the past, of which there were a few people, I'm reaching out to you for your guidance and your help so that we can work together and unify our great country. Trump, 2016. Was Donald Trump in 2016? I was there for that. Um, in the room i was there for that one as well couldn't sleep the night after (laughs) that's it for this week thank you charlotte thank you idris
2: thank you
3: thank you
0: this episode was produced by harriet noble and stevie hertz nico rofast is our sound engineer if you like the podcast then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review you can get in touch with us via email the address is podcasts at economist.com Please do keep sending us photos of where you listen to Checks and Balance. Hello to John in Oregon, who's remodelling his home and says Checks is a much-needed distraction. On Saturday's episode of The Weekend Intelligence, there's the story of a Ukrainian prisoner of war from the Donbass who built a house and a life for himself in the forest. You'll need a subscription to listen to that one. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.